Talking Tech Policy is recorded on Ngunnawal lands. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge their continuing connection to country and the ongoing contributions of their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were, among many things, the first Australian tech innovators. How do we make sure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of the Talking Tech Policy podcast. I'm a lawyer, a diplomat, and until recently, I was Australia's expert to the United Nations on cyber issues. A few months back, I joined the Australian National University to establish the Tech Policy Design Centre. We're launching this podcast because we want to empower more people to get involved in tech policy. We're kicking off with a double episode. This is part two. In part one, I interviewed Minister Fletcher, the Australian Minister for Communications, Urban Infrastructure, Cities and the Arts. If you haven't yet listened to that episode, I urge you to do so. But for the moment, let me introduce you to our guests for part two of our launch box set. I have with me here today three very excellent guests, and I am really excited uh, to introduce them to you all. We have uh, Melinda Salantro, who is an economist, but we're not going to judge her because she's an economist. Uh, she is currently the Chief Executive Officer at CEDA. You've had senior roles both in business and in government, which I think is actually quite an unusual uh, position. Um, and you have really stood out to me as one of the senior leaders in Australia who understands tech policy and is passionate about it. And I think there are lots of people in Australia passionate about technology, um, but the tech policy is particularly unique. So Melinda, thank you so much um, for making the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Our next guest is Stilgarian. Um, Stilgarian is a freelance journalist, a commentator who covers the politics of the internet and the way that is changing power relationships at every level of society. He is particularly interested in internet policy, cybersecurity, privacy and cybercrime. And in his own words, hoovering up bulldust. Uh, he is also a host, in my words, of an excellent podcast called The 9pm edict and actually I should have mentioned Melinda's podcast as well which is an excellent podcast uh, The Economist's Corner and for me uh, Stilgarian you've been writing about these issues for probably longer than you want us to say um, but I have always appreciated uh, your passion and enthusiasm for the subject so thank you very much for being with us. <laughs> My pleasure even if, the, if that is just a polite way of saying I'm old. Old but wise. Oh. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Emily Vandenagel. Uh, Emily is a lecturer of social media at Monash University. Uh, she researches social media identities, cultures, pseudonyms, anonymity, intimacies, memory, and algorithms. And she is the co-author of a book, Sex and Social Media, which Santa, if you are listening, is now on my Christmas list. So Emily, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Johanna. We have come a really long way in relation to technology in a very short period of time. And I always think it's interesting to hear from each of the people uh, that I'm talking to about what your first interaction with a computer or with technology. So um, let's start first with Melinda. What was your first uh, interaction? She's laughing. It's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Johanna, you had to start with me and... Um... I am going to carbon date myself here. Um, I thought, oh, what was my first interaction? Um, and then I had to go all the way back to high school. And, um, you know, I actually remember filling in one of those punch cards. Oh, wow. Right? Like, so you see, I have carbon dated myself. Where, I've seen them in a museum once. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> you, get, you get the pencil out and you, you fill them in and uh, we sent them off I don't know where and, uh, and I think it was part of some lame high school project and maybe we got a printout that had some picture on it or something afterwards. So that was my first one. Were you impressed by it? Did that like... No, that, didn't, it, that didn't impress yeah. me at all. Um, yeah. My second one, which, which I think is kind of interesting to reflect on, my parents remind me of this all of the time and I wasn't impressed at the time but I am now when I think about it. They used to run a small business and... I think they were one of the first small businesses in Australia to have a Wang word processor. Oh. And I can't, um, the cost of that in in today's dollars was enormous. Mm. But what they did was actually actually direct mail promotions to customers who, not realising that it was a Wang word processor, 
thought that the owner of this business had hand typed and hand signed a promotional deal for them. Um, And it was hilarious because what they used to do was set this thing up to run, press go, uh, and then go home for the night and come in the next morning hoping that the printer with the little perforated paper with the things on the sides had had fed through a thousand letters overnight. And if it hadn't, then they just had to start all over again. So so there you go. That's that's my ancient uh, tech experience. So your parents were possibly the first spammers in Australia. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Still, Gary, and I can see uh, you have something to say. Look, I want to know whether Melinda's experience with the little optical mark cards was in South Australia. Yes. Ooh. Then those cards went off, because I did it too, to a place called the Angle Park Computing Centre, which was indeed a high, a lame high school thing. But a couple of forward-looking teachers in South Australia had got hold of somehow a second-hand IBM System 360 mainframe. And how so many I, of those would there have been in Australia at the time? It, it would have been less than 10, certainly. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I mean, the, the, those were computers that were built from the late 60s up until just past the mid-70s, I think. So we, the period we're talking about would be somewhere probably in the second half of the 1970s, perhaps in the middle. So, yeah, <laughs> thumbs up from Melinda. So that was my first experience too, except I was one of the special boys who actually went out to the mm. Angle Park Computing Centre itself and could type directly into the mainframe computer on a, a green screen terminal. Then the internet for me, um, sort of pre-commercial internet in Australia, there were amateur-run bulletin board services such as FidoNet, which sort of connected to the internet. They mm-hmm. dialed each other up in the middle of the night to exchange email. So email was an overnight thing in those days. <laughs> uh, and then in the very early part of the 1990s, uh, there were ways of getting a permanent internet connection uh, via a cutout organization through universities it was all set up legit but it meant you could have a not a not expensive permanent internet connection at all of 2400 characters per second (laughs) dial-up speed Uh, but it meant that years before several years before there was commercial internet in australia you could have a permanent internet connection in your home Wow. All right. So maybe, um, Emily, what was your first interaction? And I suspect you're going to be moving us forward (laughs) slightly a little in the timescale, which I don't mean to be rude, but it's just a factual observation. Getting roasted for being... The young, the young person, yeah, exactly, the noob on the panel. Thanks very much. Um, I Look, I certainly remember a, a time pre-computers and pre-internet. I, I have fond memories of the computer at home being connected to the internet for the first time and having to go through the, the screechy dial-up process to access things like email and chat rooms. Um, which seemed very sparsely populated. I, I can remember when I got an email address, I think the only people I knew who also had an email address were my dad and my older sister and I think a, guy, a kid who lived a few streets away and that was about it. So it was a bit difficult to see how this technology was going to transform every single social connection that I had. I actually feel like I grew up very much alongside the emergence of social media, actually, given that um, by the time I got to high school, there was a lot of connection and, oh, goodness, a lot of social politics being conducted over MSN Messenger. Oh, yes, Um, MSN. Yes, and then, you know, just as I was leaving, MySpace was taking off and and Facebook was something that that ended up connecting me to a lot of my new friends at university. So, you know, from from that sort of time onwards, uh, it wasn't just three people in my life who had an email address. It really felt like everybody I knew um, was, was being connected through these platforms and they've been very important to my life and my work ever since. 
Yeah. And it is incredible, right? Because the period of time we're talking about and kind of laughing about is only 40 years. And, you know, that the transformation that's happened in that 40 year period from a technological point of view is enormous. And now we have all of our regulatory frameworks really sort of struggling and straining to keep up with all of that change. The other question that I really like to open with is why technology policy issues are important. And for me, it's a no brainer. And I think one of the best things about working in this field is if it's something you're passionate about, it's an area where you can have real impact. But the flip side of that is that there are also a lot of numpties in this field who are passionate and who have real impact. And so we need more voices to be engaged in the conversation so that we have a diversity of voices, not just the voices of those uh, who are interested. And so for people who are listening to this and maybe going, oh, is this something that I want to get involved in? Why is this an issue that is important for all Australians to be engaged in? I mean, first of all, um, I just think policy is important. So let me just declare that I am a a complete policy nerd. um, And I have this great belief that all people should be interested in policy. So (laughs) you can take that uh, how you will. Tech policy It's just, you know, technology is just so important in our lives. And you've just talked about the funny summary of 40 years of, you know, what's evolved. And you can see how much it's transformed our lives, how we communicate, how we work, um, the opportunities. You know, it's, it's just quite simply tremendous what's before us. And it has, there's opportunity and there's risk. And my concern is that if we don't really start seriously talking about tech policy and how we show stewardship for technology, um, we're going to end up with a really suboptimal outcome uh, because mm. people are going to think that certain things are being looked after and they may not be. There's going to be a potential mismatch or misalignment of expectations in terms of um, the tech sector and government and, and the community. And my experience has been that when that happens, what you tend to get is you know, regulatory backlash um, in a way where you get regulatory overreach which isn't good either. That's particularly compounded in this space, I believe, because um, I'm not super confident that we've got the level of knowledge and understanding across policymakers and politicians um, to mm. get the nuance right in regulation. So that's kind of a, a quick sum of why I think it's so important. Yeah. So I would love to come back to that point, Melinda, because the asymmetry of knowledge is something that I'm particularly focused on. And I I think the stewardship point is really speaks to me. And there's this sense, I think everyone's read the dystopian novels. um, There's also utopian novels. And I think at at the moment, there's the risk that we're sort of sleepwalking towards dystopia because people are not paying attention. So uh, Stilgarian, one of the things that I'm always attracted to in your writing is the fact that you, you do take these deeply technical issues. You have have knowledge and understanding, but you also connect them to the societal issues. So what's your elevator pitch for why this is important? Well, I tend to zoom way out and start with that old statement that knowledge is power. Mm. Information informs knowledge. Information's just data. So we are in the process of completely replumbing, rewiring the way the planet handles information, which means effectively we're replumbing the way power works. And that does sound pretty grand, but I can see you all nodding when I yep. say that. So the, the question then becomes, who is controlling who has access to what? Who decides what will be knowledge out there and what will be knowledge that we can't have? And, you know, we, we, we say well, you know, we don't live in a, a, an authoritarian society. And I go, well, yeah, this is, these are all shades of grey. And history teaches us that it doesn't take long for a society to change into an authoritarian society. We're, you know, we could name countries around the world right now where they were quite surprised by political happenings in their own country in the last four years to pick a completely random number. (laughs) So it comes back to, you know, to bring the policy angle is who is making those decisions and are the people making those decisions actually knowledgeable about what they're doing or are they just going with the flow? Uh, And of course, the the large tech companies are very powerful. You know, they're, they're corporations worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They've, they've got, if you like, a GDP up there with some of the mid-ranking countries on the planet. And 
do we want them making the decisions? Do we want politicians who may or may not be well informed making the decisions? Or do we just want to cruise along? We're only at the very beginning of this journey in a way. I mean, only 40 years, but uh, the, the idea of high bandwidth always on, always with you in a mobile sense connections are more like about the 10 year mark, very early days. Yeah, and I, I think that's, I love that idea of replumbing power. I think that's a great description. And it, it really emphasises what's at stake in these conversations. And at the moment, I think you have government and you have industry and we're missing the independent middle voices. We're missing a vibrant civil society. There are some civil society organisations, but not enough. And really that is something that we was part of the motivation for me establishing the Tech Policy Design Centre is to help build and mature that ecosystem uh, so that we can have more people involved in the conversation and you, listener, are our target audience. Emily, why do you think people should be more involved in this discussion? Well, look, I think that the reason people should care about tech, tech policy is because they use tech. You know, um, it's this is something, uh, if we think about what tech policy is, it's a, it's a series of decisions about how technology works in a particular context. So if you are part of Australia and you use technology, and that's a lot of people, then I really think that you have a stake already in how this policy works, who makes decisions about it, and how those decisions come into play. We, we're really attached to our devices and our streams of content and the way that we find out about the world through our screens, big and small. So the people who are trying to make the rules about that certainly deserve interrogation and attention. Absolutely. And accountability, I think, is is really important. One of the future episodes of the podcast that I'd really like to uh, focus on is where are all the hidden elements of technology in our lives? But for now, we're going to keep focusing on the conversation uh, from uh, Minister Fletcher. I interviewed Minister Fletcher two days after the anti-troll legislation uh, was introduced. And you can't see me, but I'm using inverted commas when I say anti-troll legislation. And also the day after the big tech inquiry uh, was announced. So Emily, this is very much sits within uh, your area of expertise. Uh, we've heard Minister Fletcher's description of what that anti-troll legislation is designed to target. Can you give us a high level overview of what the intent of that legislation is? And then we'll delve a little bit more into some of the critiques. And I can hear Stilgarian holding himself back already. I'll be good. I'll be good. <laughs> so what's really going on here is a, a, a new bill that's being discussed in terms of its power to address trolling. And I feel that the term trolling is, is used very deliberately here to simply encompass a whole lot of malicious online behaviour. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that we're even discussing a, abuse and harassment and defamation under the umbrella of trolling because, you know, I mean, in, in my research, I really understand trolling as much more of a playful behaviour um, and, and one that's often satirical and fun um, and, and I guess trying to really speak back to power in a way that's mischievous. I understand harassment and abuse as things that, sure, can overlap with trolling, Absolutely. Um, some trolling is very unkind. But uh, harassment and abuse are not playful ways to poke fun at the powerful, they're crimes. So, so it's interesting that the bill is, is framed here as an anti-trolling um, mechanism that, that's legal. What it's really doing is responding to the defamation case by Dylan Voller, which, you know, which, which was talked about with the minister, that found media outlets responsible for Def defamatory Facebook comments. And what, it, um, what it's trying to do is basically give individuals a, a clearer pathway to suing people for defamation, which doesn't really address a lot of the things that we understand as part of the trolling, I guess, family of practices. And what it really does is put the powerful in charge of who is getting sued for speaking out online instead of, I don't know, trying to ad address abuse and harassment uh, as crimes and try to make um, 
you know, try to make platforms and, and corporations more responsible for, for the kinds of speech that they have on, the, on their platforms. All right, Emily, we'll drill down a little bit more on uh, some of those issues. Still, Gary, and if you were to sum this up in one sentence, what would you say that uh, this legislation is about? It's about protecting uh, the feelings of powerful white men by wrapping it in a thing that makes it sound like it's protecting women and people of colour and other vulnerable folk. All right. Thank you for that. That is a very, very nifty soundbite. <laughs> you um, said one sentence. I know. That, really I'm, in, I'm, I'm impressed with your ability to deliver one sentence. I mean, one sentence so pithy and not your ability to deliver one sentence. Um. <laughs> <laughs> if I can expand on that, though, I mean, it really is. Uh, people have suffered the abuse kind of trolling, which is you know, as as Emily says, is really just abuse, harassment, uh, etc., which is already a crime. But kind of blurring the boundaries with this idea of defamation, which the minister talks about. Well, we we have defamation laws offline. We're just bringing them online, and yes, the ones offline uh, disproportionately favour the rich and powerful. Uh, so they really, really, it's about ah. We, we kind of let it go that all these other people were harassed, but now my feelings are hurt and, and I need to know who it is. I want their name now so I can be in touch with them. Yeah. So I, I think just to drill down on that point about why it's disproportionately used by the rich and powerful, it's because defamation, of course, is a cause of action that you have to go to court for. Court is expensive, long. You need fancy lawyers um, usually uh, to... to uh, take this type of action. So I think that is a, a very valid point. But I, I don't want to focus too much on the legal action of defamation. What I would like to do is also focus on the efficacy of this proposed legislation. So the the way that the minister describes it is that this legislation is designed so that if you wanted to proceed with defamation actions, putting aside the merit of who can access that, if you wanted to, anonymity shouldn't be the bar, uh, shouldn't shouldn't um, prevent you from doing so. Now, Emily, that's quite a different point to uh, removing or unmasking um, trolls and that having the effect of reducing this type of behaviour. Now, I know that's something that you've focused on in your research. So could you just tell us a little bit about what your research has found with respect to um, the anonymity aspect of this uh, legislation? So in my research, I have talked about and, and written about a lot, I guess, the value of, of anonymity. And I'm really suspicious of any kind of um, moves made, especially by, by governments, but, you know, also by social media platforms that seek to eradicate anonymity. And we see this solution come up again and again. Some bright spark suddenly gets the idea, hang on, if we just made everybody use their real names, everyone would be nice to each other on social media, which just astounds me that this is still a conversation that's happening because we know that that just doesn't work. There's so many instances of really vile abuse and harassment that happen under people's real name and that actually there's a, there are hugely, huge and hugely important arguments to suggest that people who are anonymous are doing so for really valid, really important reasons. Twitter has done a study recently after there was racist abuse directed at black players on England's football team after they lost a match to Italy. Um, now, this unfortunately led to a huge upswing in people sending racist tweets um, to these players and, and you know, in, in the mix. Of the accounts that Twitter permanently suspended for this abuse, 99% of them were identifiable. And that's, even though that's just one instance, it really goes to show, I think, how unafraid powerful people are of attacking others, not from behind some kind of cloak or a mask of anonymity, but from their position as a powerful person in society. This is also something that, you know, for example, um, Yasmin abdel Majil has, yeah, has spoken about a whole lot. Yeah, she's spoken very beautifully about it. For her, the real trolls, if you wanted to go ahead and, and use that term, were, were often journalists who were publishing stuff about her that was really upsetting, hurtful, you know, uh, harassing and passing it off as media content. There, there's a real sense, I think, in, in that particular instance that the values of 
of the news media are about being sensational, you know, about creating an enemy and, and about sometimes piling on criticism and, and sometimes abuse to particular people. And it's, uh, it's no secret that there are power dynamics here that are, I think, much more important to focus on than simply get rid of anonymity. So defamation, high bar uh, to action. Um, the, the thing that I did, and I think credit where credit is due, the good thing about this legislation is that it either requires the consent to be to have your anonymity removed, so you consent for your anonymity to be lifted, or it requires a court order. And I, I was quite relieved by that. In the first statements that came out by a government, it wasn't clear that that was going to be a requirement. So putting aside how often this provision will be used, I was comfortable that that level of oversight was there and that is a positive. Emily, do you think this legislation will be used very often and in comparison to, for example, the e-safety adult bullying provisions, which are much cheaper, much safer, much quicker, go through the e-safety commissioner and uh, hopefully have the offending content taken down within 24 hours and should note that that legislation only comes into action on the 22nd of January this year coming. So it's, it's new legislation and I think that in contrast to the anti-trolling or anti-defamation action is actually quite sound, well thought out, well thought through legislation. So Emily, I would be interested in an expert's opinion on that as opposed to my uh, ruminations. It's a great question, you know, to ask how many people who are being Mm. harassed and abused on social media would like to sue that person? Is that a solution that uh, that, uh, everyday Australians would like? Because I'm not sure that it is, you know, and, and I, I feel like as we've canvassed already, legal proceeds and defamation lawsuits are costly. They are expensive. I don't think it would occur to a lot of people, even after this legislation, you know, if this legislation passes, I don't think it would occur to most people that this is something that they can access and this is a, a good way to stop somebody from being you know, harassed and, and, and trolled and bullied and um, and abused online. It's really interesting as well that it seems to be that if you're going to try to sue somebody for defamation, how does that work in the case of, for example, being swarmed or flooded by a whole lot of different people? We saw, I think, especially, you know, a huge example of this was in the Gamergate controversy some years back now, when a huge part of this sort of concerted campaign to make women and non-binary people feel unwelcome in the video games industry and community was, you know, that we that we saw a lot of people, especially marginalised people, just get absolutely flooded with abuse and harassment. It, it became really difficult for some people to even open their Twitter and wade through hundreds and or, or thousands of notifications to get to somebody who actually wanted to reach them as a, as a person, right? How is suing someone, uh, let's let's say an individual, going to help with that? You know, is it so, you know, that's already, I think, a, a, a very interesting question. I, I would also really love to see some stories that come out of the, the e-safety bill and the e-safety legislation. If, they, if indeed they have come up with an easier, more straightforward way to remove things that are said about somebody on social media, yeah. I'd love to see how that's going to work. You know, and to, and and to hear from people who have successfully gone through that process and found that because of it, their social media is a safer and kinder mm. and more useful space for them. Um, because I think those stories could have the potential to be really valuable and important. So I, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I can see already that the e-safety commissioner is going to be, uh, uh, I guess, an important guest uh, for the podcast. In doing some of the research for this, we did look at the number of complaints that have been made to the e-safety commissioner around children's cyberbullying, which is largely what the complaints are around, and also image-based abuse, which is also uh, something where the provisions have been considerably um, strengthened and the e-safety commissioner will have a, a whole raft of new tools Uh, from the 22nd of January. And what I was surprised by was both the effectiveness. So they claim that something like 92% of complaints that they receive, that they're able to action, um, the offending content is removed um, within 72 hours. This new legislation changes it to be uh, removal within 24 hours. But also, so yes, it's effective, 
But the number of complaints, let me take a guess. How many complaints do you think they received? I think this was in a 1920 uh, year period. Not many. 3,000 was the action. To go to your point, this type of behavior, there'd be 3,000 bad things said online or bullying activities happening almost on an hourly basis, I would expect. And so I was surprised by how few complaints are being made, um, but very interested to see how that evolves. And I, and, um, I, I think the work that the eSafety Commissioner, Julia Mangrant, is doing is excellent um, and she has a, a great team. But a, a tough job ahead of them, I think, as they expand their powers and more and more people rightly become aware of what they, uh, what they offer. Melinda, still, can I uh, throw to either of you before we move on to talk about the inquiry into big tech? I, I was just going to say, 3,000 complaints. That's, that's, that's only 10 a day mm. out of, uh, you know, 20 million internet users in Australia or 18 million or whatever you were talking about. It was shockingly small yeah, to it, me. Which mm. tells me, to go back to Emily's point, that this is not the way people choose to deal with things. I mean, there may be an education problem. They may not yeah. know that this is an avenue. That was exactly what I was going to say. But there are tools... <laughs> within the platforms themselves to complain about someone. I mean, if, if someone was was abusive to me on Twitter, I would deal with that on Twitter. I wouldn't involve the government. And I think one of the things uh, that is also part of this misnomer anti-trolling legislation is a call and, a, and a, in fact, a demand that, that platforms have more efficient complaints mechanisms. And again, I think that is a positive to come out of this legislation if we end up with the platforms uh, providing options for people to actually have complaints and have those complaints actions because that is a, a a common concern that people have that whilst the complaint mechanisms may exist they're not necessarily particularly uh, effective in all instances. Johanna can I just jump in there and I think maybe we'll get to this later on in our conversation as well but I'm going to be you know put my sort of policy nerd hat on here and say the thing that I really like to see in policies and legislation is what is the intended outcome and you sort of form a view on whether you think that's actually going to deliver it, right? And and I think what I'm hearing everyone else saying is is my perspective as well. I just don't understand how you would really think that this defamation approach is actually going to get you where, where you want to get. I think part of the problem that we've got at the moment is that this is the sort of issue around which I think ideally um, you would get the platforms to sit down and seriously constructively work with government to work out what the various approaches might be to get the desired outcomes without going the legislative route um, first and foremost. And then you track the outcomes you're looking for and you see the progress that's being made and you evolve on the way through. That's not the way we're doing policy at the moment and so it doesn't really lend itself to that kind of responsiveness, if you like. So that's my biggest kind of complaint with these or concern around these things is that they get written into law um, against the backdrop of an industry which is moving really quickly and and I would prefer to see, you know, a more collaborative approach to it. And And I say that knowing full well that there is cynicism around big tech and all the rest of it, but I do think that that's going to get you to a better place. Mm. And actually, the the approach you've described is actually is not dissimilar to the approach that was followed for the e safety legislation, which was uh, implemented after extensive consultation. Um, there's these codes which are controversial that are currently being negotiated, but um, you know industry is having a big role in designing and inputting them. In many respects, I I think this uh, anti troll legislation is doing a disservice to Minister Fletcher's legacy because he actually has made some. Um, sensible policy progressions. Um, And so uh, it is interesting to see also the difference between the stated public objective, so the rhetoric around the announcement, um, we want to go after trolls, this behaviour is bad, versus um, the stated objective in the legislation, which is much, much more narrower and actually has very little, as we've said, to do about trolls. So I think that is a nice segue into the announcement of the inquiry to uh, big tech. It was announced uh, last week. Very important issue, no question about it, um, that we need to be having a look at um, the role of large technology companies and the impact that they're having on our lives, on uh, children, many of the points that you uh, had had touched upon there, Melinda, but others have also raised. But I have serious questions about the timing of this inquiry. It's to report 
Conveniently, in February, we are leading up into election season. Uh, The election in Australia has to happen before May uh, this year. It's a well-known fact that every election needs to have a crisis. Uh, Stilgarian, do you think big tech is the crisis of the 2022 Australian election? That's an interesting question. I mean, certainly the anti-defamation component of everything we've discussed is part of a government's crisis in having their election messaging disagreed with in, uh, shall we say, robust terms. I mean, Australia used to have a tradition of robust political commentary, I thought, but that seems to be gone by the wayside. Uh, what worries me is the speed about it. I mean, certainly, yes, we we are the government who can protect you from all the bad things on the internet. We're seeing it hammering this idea of safety, safety, safety. But safety from what? Safety from whom? The trolls, whoever they are. And as, as we've said, that, that could be almost anyone, depending on how you want to define the word troll in that sentence. What worries me about the timing, and I don't know whether this is uh, your concern as well, Johanna, is that it does seem to be a bit of a rush, and uh, it is about informing this, uh, you know, decision on how the eSafety Commissioner can use her new regular uh, regulatory tools. I just think it might have been an idea to think about how those tools could be used before she was given them, <laughs> and in particular, look at how they might be misused, because I mean. The whole structure relies on the e-safety commissioner being a person acting in good faith. And fine, Julie Inman-Grant may well be such a person, so might her successor. But what about people after that? The process does seem to be backwards and rushed. Yeah. And I, I again, I think it's interesting because there was a long conversation about what regulatory tools uh, the safety commissioner should have. She hasn't yet exercised those tools because they don't come into play until the 22nd of January, um, which is, a, you know, a, a couple of weeks, a month at most before the report ends. So it does seem it's either too late or too early um, to address mm. the particular stated question. Melinda, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, where to start? (laughs) Where to start? Let me start with the practicalities of it. It's December. Uh, It's going to report in February. Um, I think like the rest of Australia, a big bunch of us are having a big chunk of time off. So let's call this a four-week inquiry. It's just a ridiculous time frame. You know, big tech, I think, is an easy target at the moment with all the whistleblower stuff coming out of the US, the issue around where do they pay tax, just the size of, of these businesses now. Um, I think, you know, there are some concerns and some issues that probably do really need to be explored. You know from our previous conversations that I'm a big fan of actually transparency and independent assessment of what the implications of um, what they're doing, of emerging tech, of the structure of businesses, all the rest of it. I'm, I'm, all, I'm up for that, but I think a four-week inquiry doesn't make sense at, in anyone's book. Um, and... It also, I mean, as a policy person, I know I keep saying this, but we actually don't think that the lead up to elections is a really good time to be discussing serious policy. It's not It's not an environment in which you get nuanced conversation. It's an environment where you rule um, things in and out in very simplistic and blunt ways. So I, I don't think it's, I don't think any of that um, bodes well in terms of what we get out of it. The only other thing I was just going to do just as a bit of a, an economics marker, if you like, is just to say that these conversations around these big businesses are not new. Yes, they have a particular dimension in the context of technology, but you can go back to the early 1900s when we had very serious big antitrust conversations around the big companies of the time, um, you know, the standard oils of the world and all the rest of it. So when you get businesses that that lend themselves to scale and potentially anti-competitive behaviour of a whole bunch of different complexions, they do eventually attract the interest of regulators. So, so I think that's just a kind of a, a bit of a marker to say, yes, there are aspects of this that, that are specific to big tech, but, but, but big companies themselves get you know, focused on at different points in time for um, very reasonable consideration, I think. Yeah, and I I think it's true to say that big tech uh, seems to be in the sights of the Morrison government. And I think there are very legitimate reasons to shine a light on big tech. I just don't think you can do that in the timeframe that we have um, for this inquiry in a meaningful way. And as such, I think it's doing it a disservice. Well, let's move on to favourite topic of many of us, I'm sure, uh, encryption. So encryption, uh, I, I... pressed uh, Minister Fletcher a little on encryption. The context for the conversation 
uh, with Minister Fletcher is that under the new e-safety laws, um, there are um, a series of uh, ministerial um, discretionary powers where there is um, draft uh, basic online safety uh, expectation provisions that have been published that say that if uh, communication is encrypted, it uh, there is still an expectation that platform providers um, will apply the e-safety provisions so that they will ensure that children aren't being bullied on encrypted platforms um, or that adults aren't being harassed or, or having um, accusations of serious um, uh, intent to harm. Now, in principle, no one wants children to be bullied online and no one wants to be harassed or have uh, serious harm uh, threatened against them. But there is a very real question that this raises around encryption. Now, Stilgarian, you on your 9pm edict podcast have a wonderful thing called the trigger words where you ask people to send in advance trigger words for your guests. And I feel like if I did that for you, there would be an inundation of of the word encryption. <laughs> so what do you have to say for us here? Wow. Uh, yes, I have written about this a lot over the last decade or more. And I did write a paper for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington on the whole history of Australia's approach to encryption on the internet, which... Uh, okay, this is important stuff. I, I mean, people often find it abstract and that's why the government thinks they can gloss over any nuanced discussion of it because it's to protect us from the unholy trinity of terrorists, international drug dealers and pedophiles. Look at, to, to kind of explain why it's important, when you go about your business at home, at work, wherever, there's a lock on the door, there's a lock on the filing cabinet, uh, a passcode on your phone. Uh, when your information is in transit over the internet or stored somewhere on the internet, encryption is that lock for you on the internet. You have the key to the lock. You can decide what to unlock and show to people and so on. So the argument then becomes, there are valid reasons for you to be forced to unlock stuff. Like in the same way you can be forced to unlock your house because the cops have a search warrant because they have a reasonable suspicion that something criminal is going on inside. That's not something which anti-encryption people are arguing, at least the ones genuinely arguing the issue. The question then becomes, yeah, but who, who can demand that? And moreover, uh, with things like uh, the TOLA Act and such, there's the idea that other people are, are allowed to have a copy of the key or the lock can be not broken, but weakened so that someone with locksmithing skills knows how to open it, even if they don't have a key. So the question from there is, well, hang on, if if you've weakened the lock, it doesn't have to be the good guy locksmith who can undo it. The bad guy locksmith could do it too. Uh, and And under what circumstances, even if the good guy does it, how is that approved? And it's something that tends to be glossed over quite a lot. But who gets to have a key? You know, and that's the question. Um, but we never seem to look at the rights-based aspects of it, our right to privacy, our right to fair communication and so on. It's always about protecting us from the abstract evil. So I guess the, the question is, how do we how do we address this challenge in a way that ensures there are rules that can be enforced around who gets the key when they get the key, rather than this simplistic idea of um, uh, these uh, communications and encryption should be uh, should be broken? Emily, do you have some thoughts on that? Again, I feel like it's you know, it's important to be thinking through. Okay, where are people going to turn? when encrypted services become a problem with them. And now, now my research is on social media. So when I think about encryption, I'm thinking very specifically about encrypted chat services, you know, like apps like Telegram, for example, um, even Facebook Messenger has, in, has introduced levels of encryption. So going back to our earlier discussions around um, social media harassment and abuse, it's, it's worth asking those questions. Like if, if someone is having a problem with this stuff you know if someone's being harassed if they're getting unwanted messages if if a conversation that they've been having with someone quickly spirals into something really threatening and menacing and unpleasant 
where are they going to turn? What options do they know that they have? You know, so, so for example, you can still use platforms to block people. You can still delete people. Um, those, those mechanisms variously work. Um, sometimes, you know, blocking somebody is enough to give them the message that you really don't want to hear from them anymore. There are lots of other scenarios in which the block button doesn't do enough. So it's, um, you know, like, like Melinda was suggesting earlier, like, like what is the outcome here? What happens when, you know, what options are available to somebody who, who's using encrypted chats uh, or, or encrypted platforms and, and you know, c- can platforms c- do anything more to help them? And if not, what other powers do we have, including government legislation, um, to intervene when things are going wrong? And I guess playing the uh, the uh, devil's advocate uh, and the opposite side of the argument that I just made with the basic online safety expectations is that actually what the government is trying to indicate here is that we do have an expectation that even if it is encrypted communications that you have a complaints mechanisms, for example, which is one of the things that is on the ba- uh, basic online safety uh, expectations. Yeah, that, no, that, that's right. En- encrypted um, chats don't mean completely un, unmoderated, you know, uh, free-for-all chats. There are still platform functions built in there that let people have some degree of control about who contacts them and how. There's two points there, really. One is that if it is a, a group chat on an encrypted platform, that group gets to do its own moderation, right? They don't need the platform to see into their group for them to enforce their own moderation policies. Again, it gets back to what are the policies of that group of people, not of the global internet. But secondly, if I'm in an encrypted chat or even a one-to-one encrypted message and I'm copying abuse or whatever, I'll decrypt the message and show the platform or the authorities. I don't need them to be able to do it. I'm I'm the one making the complaint. I'll do it. I think that goes to the point about uh, social norms and and actually encouraging people that there are things that you can do to respond to this type of behaviour. Right? That it's not that you you don't have to be powerless in the face of it, um, and parents don't need to be powerless in the face of it with children, which uh, is really what a big part of this uh, legislation um, and and the online safety uh, legislation is focused on. Melinda, from an economic perspective, um, you know, encryption underpins the banking system. The world would literally grind to a halt if we broke encryption because we wouldn't be able to access our money. Look, I think as I'm listening to everyone talk, I'm thinking it's really important to distinguish the tool from the intent. Mm. You know, like, so we're talking about a tool um, to to protect who can access information and data that that's what it is it's a tool and and there should be um, you know rules around when you get to use that tool or when the t- when when the tool can be unlocked I think that's entirely sensible but I do think you need to have proper processes and transparency um, and all of the usual sorts of governance things that we that we put around that sort of stuff from a business perspective let me sort of put something on the table, which maybe I'm going to go off in a different direction. But I find the fact that all of a sudden you start talking about encryption as if it's something that suggests you're hiding something. Mm. Yet if I go, so so I'm a company director, right? And for a while there, there's this little idea floating around that we can be personally liable for cybersecurity, which I find incredibly intimidating, to be honest. And then to have that responsibility potentially sort of touted, but then to also be thinking, well, you know, how are we thinking about encryption? Is this something that's seen as bad? Does it look like we've got something to hide? I just think, again, there's this these sort of mixed messages out there. It's a tool that has good intent in some instances, bad intent in others. Let's put the proper governance arrangements around it. And there should be a high bar um, for for unpicking someone's lock, to use to use the analogy as far as I'm concerned. And, and honestly, if I go and have a look at ASIC's own cyber resilience good practice advice, it says... The progressive companies are already using encryption to make sure that the right people have access uh, and only the right people have access to data for the right reasons. So mm. um, so I think, again, we've got to understand when are we talking about it, when's the tool being used and for what purpose, and then calibrate um, the appropriate policies and legislative uh, regulatory responses accordingly. And, and I am always um, in favour of making sure you've got lots of checks and balances there because um, otherwise I do think, to use a terrible pun, we're on a slippery slope. (laughs) 
Um, well, I do love slippery slides. So um, let's, uh, <laughs> I, I think I would love to talk more about uh, directors' duties, but um, I feel like that's probably a conversation for another podcast. The basic online safety expectations and uh, encryption, I think there's a lot of conversations to be had there about what they actually mean. And that goes to the tool and the intent question. Um, are they expecting um, active monitoring or are they talking about um, you need to provide a complaints mechanism? And, you know, this is actually these, these expectations are currently draft. So it's something that we can uh, all have uh, potentially um, have the ability to shape, which is actually really important for us all. Uh, and one of the things that we want to encourage is that more people are active, actively focused in these conversations and recognize that actually, do you want better compliance mechanisms from your social media platforms? If you do get involved in these discussions that are happening right now um, with respect to the online safety uh, legislation, because this is a mechanism by which you can have more effective social media complaints mechanisms. Um, so it's a bit of a, a call to action, uh, if you like. One of the other issues that we spoke about uh, on in the interview with Minister Fletcher was the news media bargaining code. Now, the efficacy of the media bargaining code is one whole set of questions, uh, which you're welcome to comment on if you like. I, I think there is a, a legitimate question about how much of the money that is now being paid to news media is going to journalism. Putting that aside, from a, a regulatory perspective, what I'm particularly interested in is this asymmetry of power, which Melinda, you referred to um, at the start. And I asked Minister Fletcher whether or not knowing what he now knows after the discussions that he's had um, with senior members from industry, whether he would draft the technical aspects of that legislation differently. And his response was no. And he pushed back quite forcefully when I suggested that there was an information asymmetry. Um, and my lived experience of this is that there really is, that, that the public service, that government does not necessarily understand the, tech, the technologies that they're seeking to regulate. Um, neither in many instances made the public. And so how do we actually address that information asymmetry or knowledge asymmetry is perhaps a better way to describe it so that we can have more informed debates, so that we can have a conversation about do we want complaints platforms or do we want court action? Um, but to do that, you do need to have an understanding of what is technically possible. So we'll start with Melinda, but I can see thoughtful looks on everybody's faces. So we'll go around the uh, we'll go around the table. I'm going to throw a cheeky little comment in first, saying, "Gosh, you know, it's nice to have someone looking after you when you haven't cottoned on to the impact that technology is going to have on your business." Yeah. Um, in terms of advertising revenues, but conversation uh, for another day. Uh, Johanna, you know, one of the things that we've sort of talked about is actually just trying to get more visibility on um, our tech aspirations as a nation, uh, the opportunities and the challenges. And we talked about appointing a chief technologist, not because we don't think the chief scientist hasn't got the smarts to do it, but be, because we actually think it's really important that we've got visibility there. And one of the things that we'd love um, for that role or someone to be overseeing is you know an independent assessment of emerging technology and technologies that are becoming more prevalent um, and what it means for policy and regulation and the sorts of issues that policymakers and regulators should, as part of the course of their jobs, be considering. And I think that serves two purposes. One, it provides independent advice into the policymakers themselves, but by making it transparent, it should hopefully also raise the expectations of the broader community that government has got answers to very um, important and legitimate questions um, and that they are then explaining how their policy or regulatory responses are actually dealing with um, the issues that have been raised. And so I think there does need to be a lot more effort um, put into this and, and a lot more effort put into expanding the conversation on these issues and, and illuminating um, where issues are emerging that, that do need either some form of stewardship or for the community to be aware of the implications for them and their own decisions and behaviours. So that's that's just one thing that I would put in the mix. I'm just busy listening to to Melinda and, uh, and and her wisdom on this issue. I think, you know, it's it's interesting to me that 
all of us have such a small slice of understanding of how, you know, these digital conversations work. You have to start from accepting that your view of the online conversation space is really limited. I think that we really need to broaden our perspectives and really acknowledge that there's just so much going on that we never see. Um, so, you know, more stories about the different ways that people come to these platforms and um, and how they make themselves into an identity on the internet and how they then use that identity to communicate with others. This happens in millions of different ways all across Australia and the world every day. We, we have a really small perspective of, of how that really truly looks. I don't know how you're going to follow that, Stilgarian. No, neither do I. There's too many thoughts running in my, my head about this. Part of me, uh, particularly with the news bargaining code, part of me feels like just saying to those large legacy news outlets, yeah, well, you made your mistakes 25 years ago. Stuff yous. You screwed it up. Let's move on. Reap what you sowed or failed to sow back in the 1990s. You know, we, we, we stopped propping up automobile manufacturing in Australia when it was clearly uneconomical. So why are we propping up these uh, industrial age media factories when there are so many more nimble, smarter and cost effective uh, possible ways of doing it? Uh, of course, that doesn't go down well with the politicians who who have close associations with those large outlets. And now that I say that, I realise that a lot of their view of trolling online is because they fail to do what Emily is doing and looking, looking at it through multiple perspectives. All they see is them being a politician and people on the other side of politics having a go at them, often with very rude words. And and, you know, that's not pleasant, but that's exactly how we talk about them when we're in the pub or when we're around the dinner table. They're just seeing it for the first time. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> I would love to keep this conversation going, uh, particularly if we could have it at the pub over a beer. Mm. But I am going to have to, to wrap it up. What we'd like to do in closing is to do a loop around the table in terms of what If you're new to this field, if you're interested in tech policy, um, but you don't have a background, what resources would you recommend? And perhaps I'll start. One of the best books that I've read on these issues is actually called The Manuals um, by Lionel Shriver. She's the one who wrote, we need to talk about Kevin, right? So total mainstream author. It's a novel set um, in the near future, so 35, uh, 20, 35, 45, I think. And uh, I won't say any more about it than that, uh, but it's a great book. Uh, Emily? Well, I'll give you two nonfiction um, examples of books that you can turn to to, to learn more about um, internet policy and, and tech policy and why it matters. The first one is um, from an American author, Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by Gillian. C. York, who is an activist and prominent member of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, has written some uh, just a, a really great overview of this stuff. And closer to home, uh, a professor of law and, and the internet at um, Queensland University of Technology, Nick Souza, has written Lawless, The Secret mm. Rules That Govern Our Digital Lives. It's a really fascinating, refreshingly Australian take on a lot of how policy drives the internet and how it really impacts the way that we use so many of these platforms. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Melinda? I might just direct you, your listeners to a couple of websites, which is maybe a slightly different take on it. But um, one of the things that I think really excites people's interest in policy is when they can see um, what tech does, which is really good and new and different, if you like. And so I would suggest GovLab. Uh, in the US at New York University. I think it's govlab.org. The Technology and Public Purpose Project at the Belfast Centre at Harvard. Mm. Yeah. Um, and also um, New America in the US as well. They all have sort of dive into some of the policy aspects of tech, but also look at how technology can transform the way government works, which, which is also a little bit of a passion of mine. Brilliant. We'll put uh, links to all of this in the pod notes, which I think we're doing. I don't really know. I've not done this before. Can you tell? Um, still, Gary, and over to you. 
Well, uh, Emily mentioned Electronic Frontiers Foundation in the US. Uh, the Australian equivalent is Electronic Frontiers Australia. If you follow them, they uh, look at these issues, particularly from a, a rights-based point of view, your digital rights online and so on. They're a little less full-on libertarian. They're their American cousin. And if you follow them on Twitter, they'll, they'll certainly link to any new policy stuff coming out, any interesting articles to read. Uh, I should plug the tech mastheads. Uh, that in Australia do good work on this, ZDNet, who I write for, uh, and our competitors, itnews.com.au, uh, both cover uh, the government stuff. ZDNet in more length and ITNews usually quicker off the mark because that's their style. And an American blog slash podcast uh, called Lawfare, uh, which is awesome. It's it's all right, that, that intersection of law and information uh, and uh, so on. They have a, an excellent podcast, which is just called The Lawfare Podcast, and there's a sub-series of that called Arbiters of Truth, which is all about those aspects of online moderation and who gets to have a say. Uh, they look at it, obviously, with a bit of an American perspective, but they do look at issues globally. So, you know, they will do an episode on Australia's laws of encryption and so on when that becomes relevant. And I think one of the co-hosts is Australian, right, uh, of that? Uh, she North is, and I, I uh, um, yes, yeah, her. But we'll put it in the bottom. We'll put it in the notes. Yeah, she's great. She is fabulous. She's really good. And, and I would she also has a name. A very great name. Um, I would also say for those uh, who are listening and want to know more um, about actions that you can take personally, I would also highly recommend the eSafety Commissioner's website. There's great provisions and resources there for for young people, for women, uh, for older people. It really is a fabulous and underutilised resource, uh, which I would recommend uh, to everybody. Melinda, Emily, Stilgarian, thank you so much for bearing with me uh, through this first episode. Listeners, if you're still here, thank you for listening. We do really want to hear from you about what you want to hear on future podcasts so please get in touch techpolicydesign at au, and we'll be back in the new year with the next podcast thank you very much talking tech policy is a podcast of the anu tech policy design center this episode was produced by anna davies Tanvi Nair and Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Ben Gowdy provided support that only an avid podcast listener can provide. Thank you, our listeners, for listening, and please do leave us a review.